the name is Sean. Who am I? <laughs> Just a schnook. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to chapter 16, is it, of Autobiography of a Schnook? And thank you for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. That means a lot to me. Uh, I have a lot of things that I have to say today, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on a preamble, except I really should acknowledge that, hey, it's just about Christmas time. And all I want to do for now regarding Christmas is just kind of vent about something that's kind of bothered me in the last few years. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe I'm thinking too hard about things. But I feel bad for Joseph. That is, Jesus's dad. You got to feel for the guy because, well, Mary gets all the attention. I'm not saying she doesn't deserve so much attention. I mean, she does. I mean, she had to raise God's son. So, But Joseph, however, you got to feel for the guy. I mean, think about it. Some angel comes over to him and says, hey, um, Joseph, uh, you know, your, uh, your fiance, um, well, um, she's pregnant. Uh-huh. So you got to feel bad for the guy. He's like, wait, what, 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 how is that possible? How? Uh, wait. And then the angel further goes into saying, okay, now no, no pressure or anything, but you still have to raise that child. Oh my goodness. I have to raise it. That's not even my child. What am I going to do? And then the angel goes on to say, oh yeah. One other thing. Um, now, no pressure or anything, but, um, the son is, uh, well, God is the father. Now, no pressure, no pressure. You got to feel for the guy. I mean, he has to be a father to God's son. That's a pretty huge responsibility right there. But the poor guy, he gets no attention. There's there no holidays in the Catholic calendar for him. I don't think like you have the assumption of Mary You have the Immaculate Conception, which is uh, to commemorate Mary's conception. And you have the, uh, a lot of Catholic weddings you go to, they do this, uh, what they call the devotion to Mary, where the couple sits at this kind of like, oh man, I'm a terrible Catholic, uh, the subaltar to Mary, I guess. And they sit there and kind of pray for five minutes. Joseph doesn't get anything, the poor guy. So you got to feel bad for the guy. I don't know. I I just wanted to get that off my chest. But in the meantime, I have a lot that I want to talk about today, but yet all within two segments. And I'm trying to keep my limit of 90 minutes enforced as much as possible. So I'm going to shut up now and introduce the first segment. Now, here's the thing. The previous episode, I talked about my college radio tenure, I guess, but the whole thing didn't air because it was too long. I wasn't going to release the second part in the following episode because I wanted to change it up a little bit. But then I realized the second part actually has some significant Christmas content. So I think it would be a bad idea to delay something with significant Christmas content until later, till after Christmas. What sense would that make? So anyway, here is part two, talking about my college radio career. Bob Zack taught all of the radio classes. In addition to Radio 1, there was also Radio 2, which was basically more production work. 
I seem to remember it was more detailed work in regard to promos and commercials. One big difference between Radio 1 and Radio 2 was that for Radio 2, you would have to be on the air at some point, and Radio 1, being on the air was optional. But by the time I was in Radio 2, I changed majors from computer science to journalism with a concentration in radio broadcasting. So, heck, being on the air was not a problem for me. Then there was writing and reporting for the electronic media. By electronic media, they meant TV and radio, and the truth is the class was entirely radio-focused, because, well, Bob was the instructor and he didn't know TV at all. But Bob did say that anything we learned about writing and reporting for radio also applies 100% to television. I found the class to be incredibly easy. In short, we learned how to write news stories for the radio. The first thing that Bob told us was that it's nothing like writing for print media, and that if any of us were experienced with writing styles for newspapers and magazines, for radio, throw it all away. No inverted pyramids or anything like that. The big thing we had to keep in mind was that writing stories for radio and TV means writing for someone who has to read them on the air. So you need to keep the sentences short enough so that they can be reasonably read out loud in one breath. Also, the stories must be legible. After all, they're going to be reading off a piece of paper or a teleprompter or something. The guideline was that stories would be written in all caps and a sans serif font of at least 12 points and double spaced. If someone needed to read an abbreviation, you'd need to put hyphens between the letters. If the number is monosyllabic, spell it out. Never use a numeral to represent the number one because it could be confused with an I or a lowercase l. By the way, I still use this writing style to this day for putting together podcast scripts. I spell out abbreviations with hyphens. I use all caps, sans serif fonts, and 12 or 13 points. I spell out monosyllabic numbers, and I double space the text. However, I am not very strict at all in terms of using short sentences that the reader can read out loud in one breath, because that rule assumes that you're going to be reading live, but because it's a podcast, I can just use really long sentences and then later on just edit the audio so that it sounds like I'm actually reading those huge sentences in just one single solitary breath. Bob designated one class day to simulate what a real newsroom would be like. I remember Pete Colansis, uh, later known in Chicago area radio as Peter Kay before his sudden death in his early 30s. He came in late to class on that newsroom day. He walked in. Bob said, well, we already started and it's not really going to make sense for you to stay. Bob, quite honestly, was kind of cold and uh, it wasn't the first time I'd seen him not being very welcome to latecomers. He was always prompt and he would take it personally if you were late. But regardless, the format of this workshop, I guess. Bob gave us details about a few emerging stories, including storms that were producing tornadoes. As we were writing our stories, he'd interrupt us with late-breaking details, causing us to have to rewrite some of our stories. It was fast-paced and stressful, and he told us that that's exactly how it is in the real world. At the end of the workshop, he had us all read the stories we wrote as if we were reporting on the air. Bob critiqued our stories, not just the writing style, but also how we arranged them, because order matters. And if we actually kept all the stories related to the fictitious tornado consolidated into one, and he was especially looking for us to consolidate all the storm-related stories into one big story, which I honestly don't think any of us did perfectly, because one of the stories was of a fire that suddenly broke out. 
Bob's argument was that it was likely caused by the tornado, and ergo should have been part of the storm story. But even then, I found the course to be just ridiculously easy. The assignments were all pretty much the same, put together a news report to be read on the air at WCSF. We would report our own stories at assigned times during the day, and whoever was on the air at the time was given strict directions to not talk to the news reporters. Just let them do their job, don't try to joke around with them, don't heckle them or anything. In my experience, everybody hated those directions. Where did we get our stories? Well, we got them from CompuServe. Remember CompuServe? This was before the college had reasonable access to the World Wide Web, by the way. There was an Amiga 2000 computer on the desk in the lobby. You'd use that computer to dial into CompuServe, log in using the credentials taped to the side of the computer. Uh, in case you don't remember or never used CompuServe, uh, CompuServe's user IDs were always a long string of numbers with a comma followed by like four or five more numbers. It was ridiculous. So you'd log in and then you'd type Go News, which would take you to CompuServe's AP feed. Then we'd copy and paste the stories into an Amiga word processor called Final Copy, and we'd simply re-edit the stories to fit the radio format and then print out the final product. Also, the station subscribed to a dial-in news service. You'd dial a phone number and get a series of news stories read to you, each one ending with the reporter identifying herself or himself. We'd record those stories onto the reel or reel deck, pick a story to use, put it on a cart, hand the cart to whoever was on the day to play back at the appropriate moment, and the cue was usually like, and in the northwest suburbs, construction has been halted due to a security problem. Amy Shaver has the story, and then the jock would know to hit the button on the cart machine, and then we'd hear the pre-recorded story. That was called an actuality. We would record our news segment on the boombox in the station, and then we'd give the tape and the script to Bob for a grade and a critique. And have I said before that this course was freaking easy? <laughs> At least for me, I found it pretty easy. Straight A's, I practically slept through the class. And uh, apparently, though, one of my classmates didn't have quite as easy a time as I did because my dad heard one of his news reports and told me, this guy said mobile home. What the hell is a mobile home? It's mobile home. <laughs> I know who did it, but I'm, I'm not going to embarrass the guy in case he happens to hear this. But regardless... That year at the annual WCSF Awards Banquet, I was thinking I was a shoo-in for getting the News Writing and Reporting Award, given my critiques, my straight A's, but no, I didn't get it. Who got it? The mobile home guy. Good grief. Well, since I talked about our access to news stories, I should mention how we got our weather reports. Weather wasn't relegated to the news reporters. Everybody read the weather on the air. Our source? The local time and temperature phone number. Everybody who ever lived in Joliet for more than, well, a week remembers the number, 727-1761. You'd get a voice telling you, First Midwest Bank time, 1050. The current temperature is 37. And then you'd hear a short but more detailed weather report from somebody at WJOL, the local radio station. So, yeah, we were kind of stealing another station's weather to use as our own. And that phone number, by the way, still gives you the time and temperature to this day. It's a different voice, and before you hear the time and temp, you have to sit through an advertisement. It's not First Midwest Bank. But I'm just floored. It's still the time and temp number. I think I already mentioned before that the station wasn't on the air 24-7. It would only broadcast during the school year, and not even the entire school year. I 
If I remember correctly, the station went off the air during Thanksgiving break and didn't come back on until a few weeks into the winter semester. I think it was even dead during the weekends except for specialty shows on Sunday nights. This means that when the station would go back on the air, the first person on the air had to turn on the transmitter and start the shift by playing the sign-on cart. The cart had Bob Zack reading some legalese that the FCC required you play every time the station signs on and starts broadcasting. It included some details about the station, that it was a 50-watt station located on the College of St. Francis on 500 Wilcox Street. Um, I had to mention that because I could detect hesitation in Bob's voice in the recording between 500 and Wilcox. He would say something like, at 500 Wilcox? The thing is, I know that whenever I said the college's address, I would be tempted to say 500 North Wilcox, even though Wilcox doesn't have a directional designation. I even asked Bob about that. I said, you started to say North Wilcox, didn't you? And he laughed and said, indeed, he did. The spiel on the sign-on cart talked about how the station was operating under the call sign of WCSF, as assigned by the Federal Communications Commission in Washington, D.C. Ooh, it made things sound impressive or intimidating, even. At the end of the sign-on cart was the legal ID, so we didn't need to play a separate legal ID cart after signing on. There was also a sign-off cart that had to be played when the station went off the air, and it was pretty much identical to the sign-on cart, except Bob would start it with, WCSF Radio now ends its broadcast day. WCSF is operated at 88.7 megahertz with an affected radiated power of 100 watts as authorized by the Federal Communications Commission in Washington, D.C. Our studios and transmitter are located at 500 Wilcox Street in Joliet. WCSF is owned and operated... And of course, whoever was on the air at the time would have to power down the transmitter after playing the cart. And turning the transmitter on and off was no big deal. It was literally a metal toggle switch on the transmitter box. You just flip to the off position and it was done. Eventually, there was an exception to the the off-the-air-at-Thanksgiving habit. The college approached Bob and asked him if he could come up with something to air on the radio for Christmas. His idea? Just play nonstop Christmas music, which of course is now very common at radio stations around the country, possibly the world. The station had just acquired an automation machine. Now, mind you, this was back before everything was digital, so the automation machine consisted of three cart carousels. There was one player per carousel, and each carousel had maybe 20 slots that could hold a cart. The carousel would rotate and pop the cart in and out of the player at designated times, and it would switch, kind of like basically a jukebox, but with carts instead of records or CDs. You would program a certain sequence so it knew which order to play which carts. So Bob spent many days painstakingly recording hundreds of Christmas songs from all genres onto carts and then setting up the program, and the program would cycle through 24-7 throughout the holiday season. And because Bob could put multiple songs on each cart, even though the sequence itself would repeat, you would not get the exact same lineups of songs over and over. Bob christened the annual Christmas programming the Spirit of Christmas. The result? People loved it. Bob once said to us, They think this is the best thing since the invention of sex. The station would get flooded with phone calls from listeners saying how wonderful it was, how much they loved it. Local businesses would actually have our station on for background music. But again, I remind you, it was analog. 
It was all moving parts with magnetic tape. And anybody who came of age in the 70s or 80s will tell you of all the things that could go wrong with magnetic tape products. Sure enough, one year during the spirit of Christmas, one of the cart machines in the automation unit jammed. On Christmas. So the then newlywed Bob had to interrupt his holiday festivities to dig the stuck tape out of the player with his poor wife in the corner, patiently (laughs) waiting for him to fix the machine. Bob said, you know, my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world, but you'd be amazed at how fast she became the Wicked Witch of the West that day. (laughs) And I've met Bob's wife uh, one or two times. She is a lovely person, lovely person. But there was one particularly popular song Bob could not find for the Christmas programming, Santa Baby, as done by Eartha Kitt. He could only find Madonna's version. Santa Baby, slip a stable under the tree for me. I thought that was strange because Eartha Kitt's version is a freaking standard. As I mentioned several times before in this podcast, I worked at the Joliet Public Library. So the next time I was at work, I spent maybe two minutes searching and I found a compilation on cassette that had the Eartha Kitt version of Santa Baby. So I checked it out and left it in Bob's mailbox next time I was in the station. A couple of days later, he handed it back to me and said, where did you find this? I said, I went to the library and it was right there. He said, well, nobody goes to the library. By the way, to this day, the last time that I saw Bob Zack, he was at the Joliet Public Library, where apparently nobody goes. (laughs) But anyway, let's get back to the automation machine breaking down with a jammed cart. Well, that was one reason Bob got an idea my senior year. Since Bob had been doing The Spirit of Christmas for a few years already, it was entirely his baby. He alone worked on it, but he was getting tired of doing it alone. So he decided he would get people to help him out, and he would reward those he picked with a free trip to Las Vegas for the NAB convention. That's the National Association of Broadcasters. He would interview everybody who applied as if it were a job interview, and he picked three. The three he picked, Katie Murphy, the aforementioned Peter Kay, and, well, some other schnook who does podcasts now. Uh, by the way, that was uh, this guy here. <laughs> Bob said that the four of us would be the Beatles of Christmas. Our responsibilities were pretty simple. Just have three-hour shifts in the station, fix the automation if it breaks down, take phone calls, and occasionally break in just to say a few words about the music, give shout-outs to people who called in, things like that. In the meantime, we would pass the time by doing a little project Bob had been wanting to do for a long time give all the CDs in the station a good cleaning and take a marker and write the catalog numbers in huge digits on the discs themselves so they don't get mixed up in the wrong cases. Occasionally, we would stop the automation and have something special scheduled, like, say, Gene Autry's Cowboy Christmas or maybe an hour of all-country tunes. During one of my shifts, I was scheduled to play a Mannheim Steamroller CD. I had never heard of Mannheim Steamroller at the time, but Bob told me that they were a huge deal and we would have a ton of listeners during the Mannheim Steamroller hour. So, huge deal, ton of listeners. I thought it was some kind of serious orchestral thing or something. One of the things he told us we'd have to be a little bit formal about when introducing it. So, I introduced Mannheim Steamroller, put the CD on, and heard what sounded like somebody playing a MIDI sequence on a Casio keyboard or something. I panicked. I stopped the CD and said on the air, whoa, sorry about that. I obviously have the wrong CD in. I'll get the right one in right away. 
The Mannheim Steamroller CD case was empty, so obviously the right CD was in the wrong case, so I had to figure out where it was. Meanwhile, I popped the CD out of the CD player, and well, it sure said on the disc itself that it was Mannheim Steamroller. Hmm, could be that it was a bad pressing. They pressed the wrong music on the CD. Wait a minute. It says here the first song is Deck the Halls, and uh, that happens to be listed on the CD liner and the CD itself as the first song. It then hit me. This cheesy keyboard stuff really is Mannheim Steamroller. Oh my god, people go nuts for this? (sighs) Fine. So I put the CD back in and played it. I know I'll get a lot of hate tweets for this, but really people, this is what you listen to at Christmas? I think I know why they're called Mannheim Steamroller. It makes you want to lie down on Mannheim Road and pray that a steamroller runs over you. And uh, people in the Chicago area will quite understand what I'm talking about. But anyway, during another shift, I had to play something called the Choirs and Carols of Christmas or something like that. And that was the really serious stuff. Orchestral stuff, classical strings, choirs, the works. I remember for that, I actually had to play it off of a cassette. Bob had brought a cassette deck into the station and rigged it to the console, and this particular special was on a 120-minute cassette. I was a bit worried when I had to play this stuff because, well, 120-minute cassette tape is pretty crappy quality and is very thin, and ergo, it can break very easily. But thankfully, all went off without a hitch. Bob told us that whoever has to play this special can talk over the special during the quieter times to talk about the music. I don't remember what the music was or who the composer was, but one of the tracks was by a German composer, and it had a German title. Now, I had actually tried to teach myself German a few years prior, and I kind of learned pronunciation in a fairly passable way. So, without a bit of hesitation in my voice, I actually read the German titles on the air without stumbling or anything. So, Bob called me at the station and said, Where the hell did you learn how to pronounce that stuff? That sounded great! So, looks like you picked the right guy, I guess, Bob. But anyway, one time when I was on the air during the Spirit of Christmas, I did field a couple of calls from some kid who would ask for a song and then end the call by saying, oh, and spank the monkey. And uh, that pissed me off. That pissed me off. And this was before everybody had caller ID, so I didn't know what the number was. I couldn't call back. But I figured if I dialed star 69, which would automatically call the number that most recently called you, if I did that just once... One seventy-five cent charge on the college's phone bill. They're not going to notice that. So I dialed star 69, hoped that I would get that little twerp's mom or something and rat him out, but nah, nobody answered. Oh, well. But other than that, all went off without a hitch. As far as I remember, aside from Mannheim steamroller baffling me, nothing went wrong with any of the four of us. The NAB convention was in April at the Las Vegas Convention Center, and Bob told us before we left, Look, just humor me and go to at least some of the convention when you're out there, okay? And we actually did spend a lot of time at the convention. We saw some pretty nifty innovations in video editing and, conversely, some broadcast console technology that would theoretically put DJs out of work. But the thing is, our name badges for the convention identified us as being from the College of St. Francis which I found kind of strange considering how Bob had drilled it into our heads that WCSF was not a college station, it was a Joliet station. Everybody else at the convention had badges that had station call signs, production company names, things like that. But Pete, Katie, and I, we found that most of the exhibitors were snubbing us. They didn't want to talk to college students. So I tried something. I took the badge out of the lanyard 
took a small strip of paper and a felt tip pen and wrote WCSF FM on it. And then I taped it over the part that said College of St. Francis. Unless your nose was half an inch away from the badge, you would not have been able to tell that the badge was altered. Suddenly, everybody wanted to talk to me. You see, somebody from a college equals somebody who's not going to buy anything. But somebody from a radio station equals potential sales. Overall, though, it was not a fun trip. The convention itself was fine, but I didn't like Vegas at all. In fact, I found it kind of sleazy and creepy, especially at night. There were a lot of boarded-up casinos, and there were strikes going on at half the casinos that were open. And it's kind of weird how they were striking at those casinos. Instead of a picket line, there was a large speaker out by the entrance with a recording of somebody with a loud, whiny voice telling about unfair working conditions, encouraging people to go to other casinos. And guess what? At those other casinos they recommended, they were also on strike and having those stupid speakers with a loud, whiny voice. Go figure. But this was in 1996, mind you. I did go back to Vegas in 2001 and absolutely freaking loved it. And I've been there many times since. The thing is, I think back in 96, the Vegas Strip was in the middle of a transitional period that hadn't quite been resolved for a few more years. But that was my senior year, um, and I noticed there was one big change my senior year in the radio station. That's that I found out the hard way when I tried to put someone on the air, the phone was no longer rigged up to the console. And I noticed that there were no more spots in the playlist for listener requests. Yep, the phone was taken off the console, and... uh, I don't don't know why. Maybe Bob thought that uh, it was being abused or something. People were doing stupid stuff on the air with the phone. I'm not really sure. I don't think I ever asked him. But I thought that was a terrible decision because we had a morning talk show and they couldn't take incoming calls because the phone wasn't rigged up. But there was one big change my senior year that I thought was pretty cool. I felt it was time that I spoke up and got a specialty show. So when it was the time of the semester to send in proposals for specialty shows, I wrote up a proposal. At many stations across the country, you have Breakfast with the Beatles or something similar dedicated to playing nothing but Beatles music. But what if I take this concept, cross the Atlantic Ocean to here in the States, and go back just a tiny bit in the alphabet and do Beach Boys stuff instead? And as a twist, while acknowledging their well-known radio hits... This show would focus on the stuff you normally don't get to hear on the radio. The stuff from the late 60s, the 70s. I'd love just once to see you in the nude. The name of the show would be Endless Harmony. That title being a nod to one of their lesser well-known songs, but one title that actually says what the Beach Boys music is all about. I'll never forget the exact words that Bob wrote on my proposal. He wrote, and I quote, Approved. Whoa. I totally wasn't expecting that. It was a shot in the dark as far as I was concerned. But they scheduled Endless Harmony to air during the winter-spring semester in 1996 every Monday night from 6 to 8. I recorded a couple of legal ID sweepers. It is now 6 o'clock. You are about to hear the Beach Boys as you've never heard before and as the oldies stations do not want you to hear. This is Endless Harmony on 88.7 FM WCSF. Joliet came up with themes and episode topics and I had to put together playlists that were timed down to the last second 
Each Monday night, I'd load up a cardboard box with every Beach Boys CD I owned, a bunch of cassettes of Beach Boys music I couldn't get on CD, a cassette player to rig up to the console. I figured that I had such a variety that there was literally no Beach Boys song, group or solo, that I would not be able to play upon request. And sure enough, somebody absolutely proved me right when he called in and asked me to play the ultra-rare Lady Liberty which was originally a Beach Boys song called Lady Linda, and it was rewritten in 1985 to celebrate the Statue of Liberty's 100th anniversary. Now let it shine, sweet lady, liberty. But anyway, going back to those themes, I had a focus on the legendary Unfinished Smile album for my first show. Another show was basically the Beach Boys Unplugged. The April 1st show had a focus on some sillier songs the band had recorded over the years. And for the last two shows, I threw it all out the window and just played the most stereotypical, fun-in-the-sun, AM radio, beach party, Beach Boys songs ever. The final song I played in the spring was Love and Mercy from Brian Wilson's 1995 album, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. And I really think my last show was by far my best. I was so tight. I nailed my on-air performance. Just everything went perfectly. Unfortunately, though, I later found out the hard way that the boombox in the station in which we'd uh, record our shows, it wasn't tuned properly. So there was a lot of static and interference that made the tape unlistenable. Later on, when I saw Matt Ketchum, whose Rock and Roll Rambler classic rock show was on right after mine, he said, So, did you listen to your tape yet? And he had this dejected look on his face. He, too, was the victim of, well, not checking the radio before hitting the record button. I guess I did have a bit of consolation later. In May, we had the annual WCSF Awards Banquet. I mentioned that earlier. And uh, that banquet covered both radio and TV. I actually came home with a couple of surprise awards from the TV department for some music I composed for our TV projects. Apparently, it was the first time anybody ever used original music and didn't just go into the royalty-free background music library. But even more shocking, I won Specialty Show of the Year for Endless Harmony. Before Bob announced me as the winner, he said that he got a particularly creative proposal for a specialty show that he felt might be very interesting. I was seriously blindsided, though. There were 19 other specialty shows that I was up against, And I thought for sure Matt Ketchum would get it for the Rock and Roll Rambler, or perhaps Paul Spinnin' Vollmer for his remix show. Both of those shows were massively popular year after year. So who voted for Specialty Show of the Year? It was, well, the on-air staff at the radio station, all the other jocks, the uh, management staff, everybody at the station had an equal say. So I was particularly flattered that they thought mine was the best. A couple of fellow jocks told me that I shouldn't have been surprised at all because I put a lot of work into it. And that is true. I mean, I I spent a lot of time in that production studio. I made some phone calls, actually interviewed somebody from Capitol Records. And they told me that more people listened to it than I ever gave myself credit for. And looking back over 20 years later, quite frankly, I'm still shocked over it, really. And as does just about any other graduating college senior, I had a big oh moment when graduation day came. I was graduating without ever having had an internship, and ergo no real experience to speak of, and I'd have student loans that I'd have to start paying off. Even more importantly, would I ever get on the air again? Well, that's a story for another chapter.
looking back, I really have very few regrets in life. I could use one hand to count the real regrets I have. Two of them are kind of related to my college radio career. Well, maybe not so much radio, but journalism. One of them was that I had to take a four-credit class to meet my graduation requirements my last semester of college. The options were photography and TV production. I didn't want to do photography because it would require that I buy a camera, and it wouldn't have been cheap. But I really didn't want to do TV. So I had to go with the less expensive option, so I did TV and I ended up hating it. I did okay. I think I got a B or maybe even an A in TV, but I really wish that I had taken photography instead and just found the money to get a camera. Would have learned so many cool things, I think. The other regret that I have that's related is that I never applied to be a production manager. Every year, possibly every semester, students could apply for various managerial positions at the radio station, news director, sports director, production director, program director. And I really feel that if I could have been production director, that would have opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And my senior year, the guy who was production director, really nice guy, but terrible at productions. Oh man, his music beds would end too early. His voice was kind of unattractive, but I digress. In listening to what I had to say, I something I just want to clarify. In both this segment and the last uh, radio segment that I did, uh, previous episode, I may have come across as sounding kind of negative toward Bob Zack. And I just want to say that is not the intention. I actually liked Bob a lot. He, was, uh, he and I got along great. He and I were on the same page most of the time. There's just a few things that he and I didn't see eye to eye with. But I really liked Bob a lot. He was a very easygoing guy, probably still is, actually. (laughs) But for the next segment, Music for Schnooks, I have a special guest. Uh, This is my second time having a special guest on that particular segment, and this time it is my wife, Lisa. I wanted to go through the concerts that I went to this year, but at the same time, I figured I should get someone else who was there with me just to get possibly two different views, two different interpretations of what we saw. And one thing I got to warn you about, uh, we didn't record this in my usual recording setup at home. We were actually on a little miniature overnight road trip and we recorded it on my digital recorder in our hotel room. And for some reason, this is a great digital recorder. I actually used to use it for podcasting all the time. But for some reason, it decided to pick up a lot of buzzing and interference. I apologize for that. I filtered it out the best I could without sacrificing too much actual content. But just bear with me and see if you enjoy it. So it looks like we saw one, two, three, four, six shows this year. I don't think there's ever been a year where we've seen more than six concerts. Yeah, I don't think so. The first one was March 15th. Okay, it was billed as the Monkees present Mickey Dolenz and Michael Nesmith or or something like that, or the Monkees featuring. Obviously, it was the two Monkees who were alive at the time. Peter Tork had recently died. It was uh, Mike and Mickey, of course. And I hate whenever you hear about 
a band from the 60s, and they say the surviving members. Like they just came up out of the hurricane shelter. or Yeah. They survived a nuclear blast or something. Like they could just say the living members or the current members. But when they say surviving, that just sounds weird. Yeah, I mean, especially since there wasn't really anything to survive. They were fairly clean compared to a lot of their peers. What did they survive? It was not, I mean, Peter had cancer. Davy had a sudden heart attack. I mean, yeah. You know, that's, yeah. You know, but anyway, that was at the Four Winds Casino in New Buffalo, Michigan. Yes. So that was the second time we saw a concert at the Four Winds. What were your thoughts on that show? Well, it was kind of a little melancholy just because Peter had just passed. Yeah. Because we had seen a couple tours with Mike and Mickey and... Peter. Yeah. And the three of them together were pretty freaking hot as a group. I mean, they they had a really great backup band that they put together that included yeah. Mike's son, Christian, Mickey's sister, Coco. And Christian's girlfriend or fiance or wife, Cersei Link. Yeah. I don't know if this is the case all the time, but I know that at least for some time in the past, Mike's daughter did some behind the scenes stuff with oh, tour manager yeah. some tour manager business and so it had kind of a a little bit of a family feel to it yeah and i, th- I think like a good portion of the backup band was from mickey's solo band that he tours with from time to time well also and this time mike and mickey had with them Proben Gregory. They had Proben Gregory, yes. From, from Brian's Wo- band. From Wondermints and Brian, the Brian Wilson band and, and I, the Now People and the Negro Problem and the Mellow Cads. And, and the thing about <laughs> Proben is he can play pretty about 98 different instruments. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a wonderful utility person yeah. to have the, on your stage. The only thing I, I've, ne- I've, I've never seen him play a bowed instrument and I've never seen him play <laughs> drums, but I would not be surprised if he could play these. He play, he could play a guitar. He could play any uh, brass instrument. He can often yeah. play more than one instrument at the same time. Hey. We've seen it happen. And I mean, Mike and Mickey, the impression I get is that the two of them, despite all the little conflicts and tensions and, piss-offedness within the monkeys over the years because remember these were four completely different people who did not come together organically they speak the same language so even if they disagree or butt heads or ego gets in the way they still keep coming back to each other whereas with the monkeys these were four guys from completely different corners of the country and sometimes a different country yeah and different backgrounds it's like if they have common ground it's something that they come to probably after a long period of time and i think mike and mickey probably always did get along to some extent and i think they've also come to respect each other much more as musicians especially when you see on stage how mickey has allowed himself to completely drop playing the drums <laughs> yeah i think i think uh, this time and when we saw them last year i think mickey never once got behind the drums yeah, i i think he's he stuck with guitar the i think time. he's completely because he never was a drummer no i think he only did it to fulfill what the fans were expecting to, f- to play his character i like that he now finally is allowing himself to play what he wants to play and be much more comfortable on stage and i'm sure mike encourages that 
lately it's been more about the music but say like i mean i'm not saying this is the cause of it but when davy was around it was i think more about their characters well, well yeah also Davy was a showman. Davy oh, yeah. was a performer. Davy had been on Broadway. And Mickey's a good showman, too. We saw seen him solo. Yeah, but, but Davy much more oh, so. I'm... I Davy knows how to put on a show. Yeah. And I mean I love I love this is an old quote from him. He says, When when I open the refrigerator, I do ten minutes because a light comes on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but with Mike and Mickey, yeah, it wasn't the hey hey, we're the monkeys. It was two guys performing a pretty solid catalog of, you know, look at the music they have to draw upon. I mean, the stuff Mike wrote is, I mean, he just was a talented songwriter anyway, but they have Goffin and King material, Neil Diamond, Neil Sedaka. Shut up, shut up, shut up. I mean, they've got quality material that they can draw upon. They did such a fantastic show. But again, there was that little undercurrent of, and I mean, it has to be kind of rough for the two of them to look at each other and just say, well, it's just us now. You knew they were going to do for Peter, they were going to do for Pete's sake, of course. But then they had, what was that? That little video that they showed. Peter had done kind of a mini concert in 2000. When was it? I think it was was, uh, April 22nd, 2011 from Wolfgang's Vault, and it was recorded in San Francisco. And they showed him performing Till Then, which was a big hit for the Mills Brothers, of all people. A lot of people recorded it, but the Mills Brothers, I think, had the most popular rendition of it. And it was such a cool performance, like, seeing him, like, playing the guitar so bluesy and singing this, mm-hmm. this nice song. Because that was what he loved. Oh, yeah. Till then, my darling, please wait for me. Till then, no matter when it will be, till then. This is the second time we've seen a show with the Four Winds, and that is not a good venue. I didn't mind it. I mean, but it's just this great big giant room. With chairs. With a stage at one end. It's just a flat floor with chairs, and like miles of chairs, with uh, some risers, like bleachers, in the back. Fortunately, the two times we've been there, we've sat very close to the stage. Yeah. Because otherwise, you can't see anything if you're short like me. Well, you don't go there <laughs> to, to see. You go there to hear. It's like, yeah, but still. And it's yeah, not I, 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 It's not a room meant to be a theater or a concert hall. It's like, take some time out from the buffet and the slot machines <laughs> to go into this cavern. and. <laughs> but it was cool to see... Uh, Probin and Christian Nesmith oh, and a couple other guys uh, eating at the buffet. <laughs> yeah, I got I to gotta mention that because we go to the buffet and they say, oh, you're here for the show? We say, yeah. And the lady said, oh, yeah, some of the band members have been kind of going in and out of the buffet. And I said, oh, wouldn't it be funny if they sat us next to Probin? And, and they did. Holy, get behind us and slightly to my right was Probin and somebody <laughs> else who was with them. I don't know if it was somebody in the band. One time when I went up to the, to the buffet, I happened to be in the same station where Probin was. And I just had to say something to him. And the thing is, I know how a lot of Monkees fans can get. Like, if there's, like, anybody slightly connected to him, they're going to be like, and, you know, just like fans be embarrassing. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. You should see these Monkees people. Well, you probably have. But. Yes. So I just kind of kept it on the download. While I was, I was just grabbing my food, and I just said to Probe, and I said, hey, I just got to tell you this. 
one of the most amazing musical moments of my life was watching you guys perform Let's Go Away for a While as the sun was coming down over the Hollywood Bowl. Like, I was keeping it quiet so I wouldn't attract attention. So Probin looks at me and says, Oh my god, you were at the bowl show? That's so cool! It's like all loud, and I was like, Ooh. It's like, yeah, people who go to a show in Michigan also can go to a show in California. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, uh, and, and while I was grabbing, uh, I, I was I was making myself a fake taco at the fake taco station, because hard shells and everything. I hear someone say, hey, nice shirt. And I look up and it was uh, Cersei Link. And she and Christian Nesbitt. What were you wearing? I was wearing my first national band oh, shirt. Okay. And it was Cersei Link with Christian Nesbitt. I was like, oh, uh, thank you. And I, I said, hey, I, I, I love that video you guys did of uh, Bluebird. On YouTube, they're, the two of the, they did, they posted a video of themselves singing Wings uh, Bluebird. And Christian said, oh, thanks. Did you know Cersei wrote that? I said, yeah, I'm sure she did. You know? <laughs> but what's like one or two or more highlights about that show that stick out for you? Mike and Mickey are just so comfortable with each other. And they, they did some of the little silly, like they, they had to do... Uh, was it when I think Mike went off stage for a quick break and Mickey Mickey did the he's gone like from the show? <laughs> a couple of things that really stuck out for me. It's I noticed that I think all of Mike's songs were done in the original correct key, but previous times we'd seen them, they were all lowered a whole step mm-hmm. for some reason. I don't know if. Uh, I, I'm guessing maybe Mike was Mike tuned his guitar down because he always has that 12 string and maybe tunes it down to lower the tension well, on his neck. The last and he didn't have a capo with well, him. Well, remember but. the last time we saw Mike and Mickey, that was the week before Mike went into the hospital. Well, or, so maybe like if he wasn't feeling so hot, they may have tuned things down because uh, he was not, you know, what maybe it wasn't as... It would be easier for him to sing stuff lower. I don't. I don't know. I'm well, the thing is, he also sang it lower the previous times we saw him okay, with Peter. Well, so, but, but so I was glad to hear the songs in their proper keys because my ears are very sensitive to that. If I don't hear something in its right key, I literally sometimes can't even recognize it. It's like seeing purple grass. And really, for me, seeing these guys. I mean, I've said this so many times before. I mean, I came into the Monkees when I was 14, and most people, like you, I was the 12. same time. Yeah. And, but so many people, whether it was the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, whatever, it's like everybody seems to have come into the Monkees when they were around pre-teen to yeah. early, early teens. No matter how old you are, when you're seeing those guys, you are 14 again. There were women at these, you know, the past couple shows we've seen who are much older than me, dancing and singing and everything the whole time. Like, it just all takes you back. I mean, it's just kind of like how Daydream Believer, of course, it was a huge hit. It is kind of a weird, you know, the lyrics are... The lyrics don't make any sense. The lyrics are a little dippy. But why is this song, like, when you hear the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, like, when you hear the beginning of it, there's just something that gets you in your heart. And it's I think it's because there's just something so sweet and nostalgic sounding about that song that it just will always take you back to being 14. I don't, I don't <laughs> to feel. Just, to just being a kid and be, or, or seeing the monkeys as something young and sweet and innocent and fun and 
you know, you forget about any problems that these guys had or any conflicts that they had or the fact that two of them have passed on. It's like you just still kind of always go back to them in 1966 when they were cute and young and (laughs) running all over the place. See, I don't know. I don't feel like that when I see them. I feel more like the older, snobbier me. I was freaking out when I heard them start Auntie's Municipal Court. I was like, what? No way! (laughs) But you've also gained more of an appreciation of Mike's songwriting and his music, too. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned the the Peter Twerk mini-concert. I don't know if if, if it was in front of an audience that he did for Wolfgang's Vault. There's a video of the whole thing on YouTube, so I'll link that in the online bibliography at Mm. schnookpodcast.com, of course. Of course you will. I don't know. I got nothing further to say about that show other than I, I absolutely loved it. If I were to find out that I would have a chance to see that exact same thing all over again, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Well, it was also just a nice little getaway <laughs> in March in the dead of winter. Yeah. You know, the we, dead of winter? It was only like six days from spring. Honey, just because the calendar says it's spring doesn't mean it acts like spring. Oh, you're talking about, say, May 21st when we saw what's left of the Who in Tinley Park at whatever the hell that place is called now. First was the World Music Theater, and then I think it was the New World Music Theater, and then it was the Tweeter Center, and then it was the First Midwest Bank Amphitheater, and what's it? It's oh, the, it's the uh, uh, Hollywood Casino, yeah. even though it's about, like, 50 miles from the actual Hollywood casino. Yeah, it's nowhere near Aurora where the, where the Hollywood... And what's interesting is that two nights later, they were at another Hollywood casino amphitheater yeah, yeah, in Maryland of, Heights. Yeah, like near St. Louis. Yeah, it was uh, Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. And um, and it was like 42 degrees. Yeah, they wouldn't shut up about how cold it's it like, was. Guys, get over it, okay? Well, the thing is, they... Probably expect the weather to be warmer, but May in the Chicago area can get cold. That but also, too, cold does affect a singer, yeah. and it affects musicians. It I mean, affects it's, instruments, it's, too. It's no joke. I'm sure Roger was concerned about his voice, and he probably well, did more things than he normally would do to keep himself warm. Well, and, yeah, and also, speaking of his voice, I didn't realize until I wrote my notes for this, but... He had just had surgery to remove a precancerous growth from his throat shortly before that show. But it was part of the Move On tour. There was a orchestra. It wasn't the best show that I've seen them do, because for one thing, I was really upset that they did not end it with Won't Get Fooled Again. Yeah. You do not end the Who show with anything but that. Yeah, but. No. No, there's a yeah, but. The What they did end with. Baba O'Reilly. Yeah where the violin lady like was going freaking crazy that yeah. was still effing awesome that was great i mean i do agree but with you is, but that's the thing not is what you end with. yeah but i'm not going to argue with Pete Townsend because he will shut you down i don't care i'm the one paying to see his damn show yeah but he's the one who deemed us worthy to see his but, show i mean yeah they did do the song yeah, but they did kind but, of an unplugged rendition of it yes but i mean it was good but Honey, Come on, man. 515 with an orchestra. And Roger doing Rain Over Me. Oh my god, love Rain Over love rain, Me. Love Rain and Over Me. And Roger's, what, 76 years old now? And he can still sing the shit out of 
out of that song well, in because, its original key. Because he is a professional and he knows what he's doing. And also it helps that he's kept himself pretty clean and kept himself yeah. healthy over yeah. the years. I mean, the fact that it's probably a good thing that, from what he says, that he's allergic to marijuana. Well, I think he's or allergic he's to smoke. Smoke, period. Yeah. And so he, unless maybe just a little bit when he was a kid, probably hasn't touched any kind of cigarette in about 50, 60 years. Yeah. So that helps keep your voice. And I'm sure he's consulted with people if he hasn't yeah. studied with a, vo a voice coach, because his voice is pretty solid. And I mean, that's whose material. I mean, we know from doing Who music in our ensemble with the Old Town School that it's very athletic music. It really is. Like, you feel like you need to do warm-up exercises. Like, not vocal warm-ups, but physical warm-ups. <laughs> yeah, they did a couple of songs from their new album that's just about ready to be released. I don't remember the names of the songs. I don't remember the name of the album. But I do remember liking what I heard. I was like, this is actually pretty cool. It was still a very powerful show. Yeah. And I am still extremely glad we went to it. Yeah, and they, they did the songs that you would expect them to do. They they didn't do much of their 60s stuff outside of Tommy, really, which is fine. They did a, a good portion of Tommy. Like, they did the Overture, Sparks, An Amazing Journey, of course. We're, we're not yeah, going to take it. And um, Pinball Wizard, of course. This is oh, The Seeker. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right, because you didn't think it was going to be in the set. Because I had been looking at the set list, and they didn't do it for a couple shows, but then they put it back in. My favorite Who song is uh, The Song Is Over, and I know they're never going to do that in concert. Yeah, I can't so, imagine they would. But if they do The Seeker, I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> so that was um, The Who, or as I call them, The Two, spelled T-W-H-O. Yeah, because you're all it's witty like that. Not all that, and because, well, they were not The Who without Keith and Ox. But Roger and Pete still carry the torch oh, pretty they well. Oh, do. they do very well. And Windmill they, R. Oh my god, what is it about... I go absolutely crazy when I see him windmill. It's nothing I hadn't seen many times before on TV, in films and things. When I see it in person, why does it blow me away? Because it's awesome. It's, and he's lost hardly any energy at all, too. Wow, so that was The Who. And we had a little bit of a concert drought for two months. The next concert we saw after that was Weird Al, the Strings Attached Tour, July 28th at Ravinia Festival in Highland Park, about 15 miles north of Chicago, give or take. And that was my third time seeing Weird Al. It was exactly what you would expect from any Weird Al show. Costume changes, little film interludes, the general silliness, Weird Al being Weird Al. It's everything you would ever want. And the thing that I was probably second happiest about was that one more minute was yes. in this set. When we saw him before, he didn't do that. I, I was kind of ticked off about that. That is a gold standard Weird Al original. And I had seen that in 1987, he was the opening act for the Monkees on their tour that year. And I saw two shows that summer. I saw him at the Garden State Arts Center in Holmdel, New Jersey, and at Six Flags Great Adventure in Jackson, New Jersey. 
And even with the monkeys, like when I saw them at the art center first, I mean, they had a whole stage set, lots of stuff where at Great Adventure, they couldn't have, you know, half of what they normally would have on the stage. But when Weird Al did one more minute, he actually ran around the perimeter of the amphitheater, throwing scarves at people. And <laughs> Yeah, he did something similar just- at Ravinia. It was, was just hysterical. But yeah, like, like the Ravinia thing was probably not too far off from what he had done back in the 80s. Yeah, like he would rub his scarf on his face and then toss it to somebody or he'd rub it on his crotch. He did severely embarrass a young teenage male usher. Yeah, yep, <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, and it was called Strings Attached because he had a 41-piece orchestra on yes, that show. Did. So that's the second concert in a row we saw that had a orchestra. Yeah. He did... Amish Paradise with an orchestra. Which is the second time we kind of saw somebody perform that song with an orchestra instead of a synthesizer. Well, Stevie Wonder. Because people doing, realize doing- Gangsta's Paradise is Coolio redoing Pastime Paradise, and they both have the same backing track, really. Yeah. Done with synthesizer. And which is why I think Coolio was kind of a hypocrite when he was criticizing Weird Al for taking his song and doing Amish. But it's like, dude, you took Stevie Wonder's song. But he probably had Stevie's direct permission. And you know that Weird Al does not parody without getting permission. Yeah, he doesn't. He does not have to, but he does it as a professional courtesy. And there was a miscommunication. Like somebody who worked for Coolio told Al that he was cool with it. But then found out later after it was released that that never happened. So that so what he made it a personal policy to reach out directly to the artist. Yeah, he's because he wants to hear it from the artist. Yeah, he's got to talk to them face to face. And which is interesting because when he went to James Blunt to do "You're Pitiful," James Blunt gave him the okay, so he recorded it. But then James Blunt's label came out and said, "No, no, 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 no." Oh, please. So he couldn't put it on the album. So instead, he had people post it on their personal websites. Yeah, because, you know, James Blunt is such a valuable entity. Oh, yeah, The label course. wanted to protect good lord. And the, the, <laughs> I, for me, the I mentioned how One More Minute was probably the second big highlight for me. The number one highlight for me, and I am absolutely dead serious about this, Harvey the Wonder Hamster. Because he prefaced it by saying, <laughs> This next song is the main reason why we're doing this whole particular tour um we just ne- we never played it live on tour before because um well mainly because i felt like i couldn't do the song justice unless we performed it with a 41 piece symphony orchestra and ladies and gentlemen tonight we have a 41 piece symphony orchestra and they did army the wonder Hamster. oh my god it was awesome i'll take your word for it because i'm not an owl head like I mean, I'm sure there were people at that show who were scary and intense and scary in the way that we're scary about Brian Wilson. I remember at that show, speaking of that, thinking about how of all the artists that I listened to, I've been a Weird Al fan longer than anybody else. I can't really count Michael Jackson either because I told you before, when I was probably in seventh grade, like when the time, when Bad came out, you didn't want to be a Michael Jackson fan because people would make fun of you. It just wasn't cool anymore. See, that's, to me, that's just sad. Because at least with the people that were around me, having somebody with this voice, like, sing about how bad they are just was not credible. So I actually 
wouldn't listen to Michael Jackson for a while. Hang your head in shame right now. Hang your head. No. Okay, you hung your head. This is my podcast, damn it. Yeah, but still. And Weird Al, I've, I've been listening to since Eat It, which was 1984. But yeah, that's that's really something. I'm not a huge... In, I mean, I have all of his albums. I have UHF on DVD, and I've seen it, but I can't really tell you much of what happened in that movie, because I haven't watched it in so long. You know the only <laughs> thing I know from it, right? Raul's Wild yes, Kingdom. Yes. <laughs> that guy turns on the lamp, and Raul's Wild Kingdom is written on the shade. He shakes the ant farms. And they get really mad when you do this, and he shakes the I gotta ant watch farm. that again. That's the only part of the movie that I liked. Oh, that was so cool. Like, the orchestra did Fun Zone, too, from UHF. But that was uh, Weird Al, July 28th at Ravinia, and we returned to Ravinia not even a full week later. July 28th was a Sunday. We were back at Ravinia the following Saturday, August 3rd. I'm holding the recorder with one hand, but I'm doing finger quotes with the other hand. The yeah. Beach Boys with Ringo Starr and his all-star band. Because your mother has always had a, a spot in her heart for Ringo. Yeah. So we f- she was out visiting, so we figured, hey, this will be a good reason to go see Ringo. And also so that she could see what Ravinia was like. Yeah. Because I've been telling her about it. and I mean, it's such an awesome place. You know, we have the Garden State Art Center, which is a big, lovely amphitheater, but Ravinia is just so much more civilized. You know, the fact that you can bring your own picnic dinner, you can Mm -hmm. bring booze, they don't search your bag, they don't force you to buy their overpriced stuff, you can set up your little camp with a little table and lights and and that the train pulls up right at the main gate. Oh, yeah. I love that so much. It's just such a nice place, and I've been telling my mother about it for years, so I figured this would be a good way for her to see it. Ringo Starr's all-star band consisted of Steve Lukather from Toto. There was Hamish Stewart from the Average White Band, and he was also in Paul McCartney's backup band in the late 80s and early 90s. Greg Rowley from Santana. He was their lead singer and Hammond B3 player. And interestingly, uh, Ringo and the Beach Boys did two nights. They did August 3rd and August 4th. And while Greg Rowley was performing with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band on August 4th, the current Santana lineup was playing in Tinley Park the same night. Oh, jeez. And Greg Bissonette, the other Greg in the band who's also spelled G-R-E-G-G, he was the drummer for David Lee Roth when David Lee Roth went solo. And interestingly, there were points in his career when he played with Steve Lukather and Santana. And there's Colin Hay from Men at Work. He was in the band. And Warren Ham. he uh, played backup with various different people over the years, including Toto. <laughs> the Ringo part of the show, I mean... It was okay. I mean, it wasn't bad. Well, it's like, I mean, like, we've seen Paul, and seeing Paul is huge. And Paul is amazing. Mm-hmm. And Paul does a show for like three hours without even taking a sip of a glass of water. He does all of these songs, and you're like, oh my God, he wrote all of these songs. <laughs> you're looking at an outstanding body of work. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, when we go to a Paul McCartney show, I'm actually more excited to hear Wings and solo stuff well, than yeah, I am Beatles stuff. Paul plays the hell out of them, mm-hmm. but you know he's got this small 
little tiny backup band. He's only got four guys on stage with him, but they're brilliant and they love him and they love this music. Yeah. And Ringo, it's oh, oh, for it's one thing, just not the same. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who who religiously go see Ringo every time he's in town. That's fine. That's fine. But thing is, like about Ringo, he doesn't quite have the catalog that the other Beatles had. And every time he does a tour, his songs are lowered. Where to the Paul rarely lowers yeah, a key. rarely, which could be a bad thing for oh, him because yeah, he can't sing as well as he thinks he can. I mean, Ringo's fine. He, like, he performs okay, but the thing is, like, well, one problem, again, is that Ringo doesn't have quite as prominent a catalog. And the All-Star Band... Unless you really care unless, about yeah. those guys... The Santana guy was good. Yeah, Greg, he but, was great. Like but they, I'm they, not did, gonna, they did the Santana songs you would expect. But I'm they, not going to go see him on his own. And yeah. it's like, you have Colin Hay. It's like, oh, yeah, Men at Work. And he plays the songs you expect to hear, like the two or three hits that Men at Work had. And then that's about it, because most people aren't going to know anything and beyond that. One thing, I, and this is one reason why I will never be an atheist, because I had a prayer answered. I said, please, dear God, do not let him do Africa. <laughs> and they did not do Africa. <laughs> Apparently they did Africa on other dates of that show, but since they were doubleheading with yeah. the... Beach Boys, they didn't do as many songs well, as usual. Also, remember, we saw Ringo and the and his all-star band back in uh, 2001. It seemed like, even though, again, it's not like I terrifically cared about the performers, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to play the one song you know. I remember Sheila E. was in in that thing, and she did this tremendous drum solo. She and, kicked ass. And... I mean, it's like they did more than just the stuff. You, it seemed like either they did more than this, the stuff you expect, or they did. They kind of stepped up because I think the tremendous drum solo was on Glamorous Life, which was Sheila E.'s big hit yeah. song. But the fact is, she took it and made it much more of a performance. And it was really yeah. memorable where these guys were just kind of like, do, 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 do. We're going to do our song and that's it. Yeah, not only that, and the thing about Ringo's shows, you go to see Paul McCartney in concert, you go to see a Brian Wilson show, they're backed up by people who are just raging fans and want to recreate the songs as accurately as possible. The people that back up Ringo tend to be like, so let's see, we're going to do Boys, that's a three-chord song, so we're just going to play any 12-bar blues and throw in an oldies guitar solo. The only thing that resembles the Boys that the Beatles performed in 1963 was that Ringo was singing it. And that was it. And it's also, Ringo was on after the whole freaking Beach Boys show, plus the intermission. It was like, can we go home now? That was, like, a, that seriously, like, we were like, gone. That was, that was a marathon. We like, were gone for at least eight hours. It was exhausting. Yeah, I, I was, was, it was wearying. I did not expect the two performers to do that much show. <sighs> and speaking of the performers, oh I this is the first, and I'm putting my foot down on this, only time I have ever seen the Beach Boys in its lineup in which the only Beach Boys are Mike Love and Bruce Johnston. I remember when Carl Wilson died and Al Jardine was no longer in the Beach Boys touring group. I remember thinking, please, dear God, do not let them continue. 
That was one time when God said, nope, sorry. And the Beach Boys at that point were just Mike Love and Bruce Johnston, and I thought that was a big, huge kick in the face. And we had seen performances on TV of the Mike and Bruce band, and it was just painful to watch. Over the years, people who were also upset about the whole Beach Boys consisting of Mike Love and Bruce Johnson and no other Beach Boys kind of warmed up to them and said, you know what, they're actually doing good shows. And like when various band members quit, they got in band members that were of, say, Brian Wilson's backup band caliber who were fans and extremely talented. So their backup band right now, like it consists of uh, John Cowsill on drums, uh, Scott Totten on guitar, and uh, Jeffrey Foskett sometimes is on stage with them. I think he's been going through some personal problems like health issues or something recently, so he's not been at every show. And I'll say this. I think Mike sounded really good. He sang well. He had a good, strong voice. The band was good, but it was the only time I'd ever been at a concert and wished that I was not. I was very conflicted because backup band was very solid. Mike sounded good. Bruce sounded good. I mean, there was nothing technically wrong with the show itself. I mean, we were in the pavilion, so we were in where people have seats as opposed to the people on the lawn. But like the people in the pavilion, lots of people were up dancing, people were singing along. I'm a lifelong Beach Boys fan, and part of being a lifelong Beach Boys fan is knowing that you don't always see the Beach Boys get their due. And you don't always see the Beach Boys being popular. So seeing lots and lots and lots of people enjoying Beach Boys music, that does get me in my heart. If you've got a venue like this where lots of people are enjoying the Beach Boys, hey, somebody might go home and get some of their music off iTunes or order a CD off Amazon that they didn't have before, which as all of us who are Beach Boys fans and Brian Wilson fans, there are gateway drugs (laughs) that you buy a greatest hit CD and it might introduce you to songs you didn't know before. You might buy another compilation that has stuff or you might buy it like one of the regular albums you go from one thing to another and before you know it you're listening to pet sounds and you're handing out copies of smile on a street corner and then you find sunflower and after that your family starts to worry about you yep but but for me i felt like i was cheating on brian (laughs) was it rob mccabe who said that a beach boys concert is a party yeah a Brian Wilson concert is church. Yeah. People might say, hey, I'd rather go to a party than go to church. No, it's more like that a Beach Boys show is more kind of superficial. Yep. Whereas you go to a Brian, con- I mean, yeah, you go to a Brian Wilson concert, you're not going to see people up and dancing. Because well, sometimes you do. You do I mean, you do, but the fact is, most people at a Brian Wilson show, like, they're like, oh, they're just sitting there. No, it's like, you're absorbing the music. For a lot of us, it's kind of like prayer. You are there to experience things, and you're there to feel things. Yep. I did not feel anything at the Mike show. And speaking of Brian and everything, you go to a Beach Boys show, almost every note that comes out of there was written by Brian Wilson. There was maybe one brief passing mention of him. 
during the show. Yeah, I know that that really bothered you. And not a single mention of Dennis Wilson. Usually, from what I'm told, is there is a mention of Dennis Wilson, and I've actually seen this. I saw this in 1996. Bruce Johnston would say, this one's for Dennis. And then he sings, do you want to dance? Jesus. I mean, for God's sake, they sing a cover. Meanwhile, when Brian Wilson tributes Dennis, he sings one of Dennis's songs like Little Bird or Forever. That, re- oh, that really pissed me off. One reason that there are some people who at first did not want to know of a Beach Boys concert that was just Mike and Bruce, but who eventually started warming up to the idea and now no longer miss a Mike and Bruce concert one of the things they tell you oh, is, oh, they expand their set list now. It's more like a, a Brian Wilson show set list because it's not just the hits, but also album tracks that fans love, just like Brian's band does. Not the case when we saw them. Hell no. It was all the usual overplayed oldies and stuff from yet another Mike Love solo album that mm-hmm. consists about 75% of remakes. Yeah. Having said that, there was one thing that I really did like. They did an arrangement of Here Comes the Sun that Scott Totten had whipped up, and I thought it was really, really nice, to the point that I actually bought that song off of iTunes. Little darling, the smile's returning to the face. It was a nice arrangement. I really liked it. But again, just being at that show, I felt so dirty. I felt robbed, and it was the only time I ever wished I was not currently at a concert. I think it's right to say that you were robbed because you I knew felt what you were. Robbed. You I, knew what you were getting yourself into. I was actually almost looking forward to it because of what people had been saying. And then when I go, I, I get there, I was like, "Yeah, all of you told me that I that well, I should go bite me." Well, thing is, for what it's worth, we tried it. It's tried not like it. we've been. You know, it's hard to criticize something or say people are wrong if we've never experienced it ourselves. But now I've experienced it. And again, there was nothing technically wrong with the show. If there was somebody who said, Beach Boys are coming to this place, should I go see them? I would say, yeah, yeah, go have fun. But it's not for us. It's kind of like when people would complain about another greatest hits package coming out. It's like, dudes, this isn't for us. This is for the people out there who are where we were 30 years ago. They need the gateway drug. So don't fault the people who are just getting into it. Of course. And by all means, encourage it. Say, hey, go out and buy this CD. And people do. I mean, whenever they put out a new Greatest Hits compilation, it sells. And Sounds of Summer has continuously been a bestseller every summer that comes around. So it's like, God bless you. Go and do your thing. But... Don't expect to see us there again. Yeah. It's not It's not for us. Yeah. And the thing is, like, I'm still really bitter about just two Beach Boys. One of them was an original Beach Boy. The other was not. So one original Beach Boy. Calling his band the Beach Boys? No, you are not the Beach Boys. I have nothing against Mike and Bruce going out performing these songs and making a buck off them. But for God's sakes, don't call yourselves the Beach Boys. 2012, you had Mike and Bruce and David Marks and Al Jardine and Brian Wilson. You had five Beach Boys. That, absolutely, sure. And it was a good show, too. But he's he's got the legitimate legal license to do it. Just because some lawyers say you're the Beach Boys doesn't mean you are. If a lawyer tells you 
that you are the Go-Go's. Are you the Go-Go's? Well, no, because I'm no. not a cocaine addict. No, you're not. But live what live. Oh, again, I mean, fi- I'm fine. It's like, go ahead and live your life. Just don't call yourself what you're not. The other thing that I'm walking away with this show is you go to a concert that's called a Beach Boys concert. It's basically made for the AM radio oldies crowd. Well, yeah. A Brian Wilson concert is made for fans, for like... For the Brianistas. For, the, for, the Bri- for fans of the actual music. People say, well, it's all about the music. Okay, it's all about the music. I can just listen to the records. Are you done? I'm done talking about that show. If we move to August 10th, a week later, yet another show at Ravinia. Oh, wait, wait. wait. We did forget one thing about the Beach Boy show. Finger John effing oh Stavos. God. I tried to forget him. Thanks for reminding me. It's an important, terrible thing to mention because... It's a terrible thing. One thing I will say, though, is that there wasn't a hell of a lot of attention put on him. I think there was a lot more the next night because I think he did do more uh. performing the following night. No, the following night he sang... I think he sang forever, uh. which I would have had to, like hurt people if he did that oh yeah it's like no you don't get to do that i happened to be channel surfing when that episode of full house first aired i was like wait is that mike and bruce and they're singing forever and then jesse says oh i wish i could write a song like forever and then bruce said you want it you can have it Uh you bastard anyway um let's move on to august 10th yeah chicago that is chicago the band at uh, ravinia again i really don't know what to say because i'm not terribly well versed in chicago i mean i love their early 70s stuff like anybody else should the only original members of chicago in that band are bob lamb and all but one of the horn players, because one of the horn players recently retired and he's just now sticking to the studio. This is, I think, well, your second time seeing them, yeah. my third. They are so tight and so solid. They play a fantastic show. They play pretty much everything you want to hear. But the fact is, there's a lot that you want to hear because these guys have had so many hits. Yeah, they've had, what, hits in, what, three decades? Four decades, I think, actually? 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s? Yeah. There's Okay, there's one thing that I hated about the show, which was the same thing I hated about the show the previous time we saw them, and something that I absolutely beyond loved about the show, and I love beyond loved about it the previous time, too. The thing that I hated is that for some ungodly reason, they only do the ending of feeling stronger every day. They don't do the whole song. They just do the end part, and that bothers me. Mm. Because it's such a cool build-up. Yeah. And the thing that I absolutely just beyond love is that they, they kick off the show with introduction. It's such a cool tune. Yeah. And then they go into questions 67 and 68, yep. which is, I mean, just a great show, a great concert to be on the lawn for. We always get lawn for the, well, always. Yeah, this is what the second time that well, you and I yeah, went, but, but, yeah, third, but third, third for time, you. Yeah, third for me because I went with a friend uh, the first time I saw Chicago in concert. But it's like 
800 billion people. <laughs> yeah, seriously, like, we could not find a place to sit when we got there. Yeah, we were, like, way, 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 way. I mean, we didn't care about seeing the stage or anything, yeah. but we were way yeah. far back. Yeah, we could see a tiny portion of the screen think, they set up. we didn't think we needed to no, get we, there. Whenever we'd gone to Ravinia for a show where we had one, we always managed to get the same spot. Yep. This time, no. It was jam packed and, and like one of the people there told me that this was the largest lawn crowd they have ever had hmm. it was like over sixteen thousand. wow oh man these are people i want to punch in the face because we found an open spot and we said hey is anybody see they were like no come on come on set up you're you're welcome to sit here and then we sat up they're like oh but we can't see now if you're sitting here is it it's like you oh. so we found somewhere else but it is nice to set up your little picnic area and we had a little string of colored battery powered colored lights in a jar and yep oh that was so cool it was it's just nice and to hear the music and but yeah i mean they did ballet for a girl in buchanan and yeah just uh, oh did they do the the dialogue yes oh yeah they did the dialogue just and they did those drippy power ballads that i hate yeah, but they were. That you like, told me to shut up about. Yeah, because they were number one hits, and they were. Yeah, important. so it was in the year twenty five, twenty five. Yeah, so. but those songs were important to me when I was in like junior high. So shut up. All right, you can deal. It's only a couple songs. It was like and, half hour worth of songs. And I had then, to sit through all these drippy, like and then the, tinkly power. Yeah, and ballads. of course, what do they end with? Twenty five or, or six, six to four. That song makes me mad. The reason why it makes me mad is because I never knew what it meant. And a lot of people don't know what it means. It's about drugs. Well, you could deduce that very easily from the lyrics. And the title, 25, because like 25 was a slang term for LSD, as anybody who saw the Blue Boy episode of Dragnet will tell you. It turns out it only means 25 or 26 minutes to four in the morning. It's about being up in the middle of the night. And, yeah, you can't write your song. But it just made me mad that it was that simple. (laughs) So that was our third and last Ravinia show of the summer. And speaking of which, when we went to see uh, Ringo and the Beach Boys, we saw Terry Hemmert from WXRT. Terry! And we love Terry. I wanted to cry when I saw her because it was like seeing a family member that you love that you haven't seen in years. Because she's like, she always hosts Beetle Fest out here, the Fest for Beatles fans, whatever you want to call it. We hadn't been there in a long time, so it was just great to see Victory. her there. And she was doing a, a remote there, and when she went on the air, she talked about how you can tell how great your summer's going to be by the number of times you're going to be at Ravinia. <laughs> you know, so we went to Ravinia three times within two weeks, actually. Yeah. I like going to Ravinia. I really do. I do, too. Some people we know hate it, and I don't really understand why because i think it's a great place to go Uh, and that brings us to the final concert of 2019 which of course now that i said this suddenly we're probably going to hear about a concert that's Mm -hmm. just suddenly scheduled for the end of the year september 22nd at the riverside theater in milwaukee brian wilson and he had with him like he's had the past few years Al Jardine from the Beach Boys and Blondie Chaplin, who was in the Beach Boys in the early to mid-70s. A little bit on the bittersweet side because it was the first time we saw Brian Wilson since Nick Walusko died. Yeah. Also on the bill was the Zombies. 
this is where the surviving part comes in again. Because, oh, God. The, because Colin Blundstone himself said, and we're going to have the original surviving zombies come out and join us later. <laughs> Which just sounds really strange yeah. when you sur- surviving zombies. Like, that's, like, yeah, that's, that's like kind of weird. Yeah, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> the thing about this show, too, is we met because of Brian's music. Yep. What better way to close out our anniversary celebration yep. than to see the man in concert? Yep. Even if it meant... The concert was billed as something great from 68 because the zombies were doing the Odyssey and Oracle album from 1968. And uh, Brian Wilson's band was highlighting the Friends album from 1968. And they were also kind of hyping the Surf's Up album from 71. Kind of a weird combination because it's a year late to do Friends and two years early to do Surf's Up. At the same time, we didn't really care because... After Brian doing stuff from Pet Sounds for so long, like a couple of years ago, he threw in some uh, some songs from Wild Honey because yeah. there was a remastered Wild Honey. And it was that the 50th anniversary out. of the Wild Honey album, and so. it was so great to hear that material that we really welcomed some stuff that we hadn't heard in concert before or hadn't heard yeah. in a long time because some of these songs they had done before, but. You know, it had been years since we heard them perform Meant for You and yeah. Friends and things like that. And Friends is one of my favorite Beach Boys albums, too. I love it so much. So I was really looking forward to the show. And, uh, of course, we had to um, sit through Odyssey and Oracle. Ugh. I like Odyssey and Oracle. I just don't love it. There are some songs on it I just do not like. I don't like Hung Up on a Filler. I mean, Hung Up on a Dream. Sorry. <clears throat> I don't understand why people lose their over This Will Be Our Year. It is such a boring, rushed song. I mean, Colin Blundstone sounds bored on it. Butcher's Tale is just so... It sounds like a Charles Dickens book, and I don't mean that in a good way at all. And Friends of Mine is Dippy. And I know you don't like A Rose for Emily. Most of the stuff... I like it, but you know. It's like just that kind of... Getting into, you know, like 67, 68, forced psychedelic, like, like, let's do something weird for the sake of doing something weird. And let's all dress up in really ornate clothing. And it just, by that point, it was like looking at a Xerox copy of a Xerox copy of a Xerox copy. It's like, you're not really doing anything groundbreaking or original or... Not saying everything an artist has to do is groundbreaking or original, but we're at least doing something that's true to yourselves instead of, oh, let's kind of sound like what the Beatles did last year. Then we had... I mean, I mean, in terms of, like, the zombies, they sounded fantastic. Like, they sounded like they hadn't aged at all. Everything was in the same key, and Colin sounded great. Rod and, oh, God, who's the other guy? The guy who sang Butcher's Tale, I suddenly can't think of his name. They sounded like the recordings. Well, I was originally going to take a pee break to avoid This Will Be Our Year, but I kind of forgot where This Will Be Our Year was, and so it suddenly crept up on me by surprise, and I actually didn't hate it. I didn't hate hearing it in concert, but I knew when Butcher's Tale was coming, so I took my pee break during then, but... I found out, as you did, that there's a speaker right outside the Tinkle Pit. So yeah. I could still hear Butcher's Tale from... Yeah. But and, anyway, let's talk about Brian. Yeah, let's talk about him. I'm going to say, this is the same thing that I said about the Brian Wilson show we saw on November 30th, 2018. 
probably the least significant factor was Brian himself. Well, yeah. Because he's hardly there. Real. I mean, the thing is, like, he's been going through a lot lately. Like, he's 77 years old, and he just had back surgery because he bad back runs in his family. It was very apparent last year because he had two people help him on and off the stage, and he was clearly, like, in excruciating pain when he walked. Yeah. And he's in a wheelchair now, but they kind of hide it because they lowered a curtain before the the Brian Wilson portion started, and everybody was already on stage when they lifted the curtain. So they're kind of trying to hide that he's in a wheelchair. And I remember last year thinking, why isn't he just in a wheelchair? He's not what he once was, but I think in terms of his own performance, he was noticeably better this time than he was last year. And he... I mean, what a lot of fans have kind of speculated on is that, you know, especially for songs that his singing wasn't really up to par, it's like, well, he's probably bored of singing Pet Sounds songs for the past X number of years. So doing material that they haven't done ever or haven't done as much, his voice was very strong on some of those things where he sang. So that was something. But also... I mean, when they did God Only Knows, and near the end, he lifted his hands up, and the the lights kind of went up over the audience. That was kind of moving. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, afterwards, we did our traditional, everybody applaud for like 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, he got a big standing ovation yeah. for God Only Knows. I mean, he, As he, he, did, not, he did not sound great on that song. I mean... Is, I mean, especially now, he can't reach a lot of the higher notes. So he was kind of struggling with the higher notes on God Only Knows. I'm going to repeat what I said last year after the Brian show that we saw. If we were to see that exact same show, but Brian wasn't there, I would still go because it was yeah. just that freaking good. Well, they did the two instrumentals from Friends. Passing by. Passing by. And Diamond Head. Diamond Head. I, thing is, I love the Friends album. Diamond Head was never one of my favorite tracks. I mean, I never disliked it. I always liked it, but it wasn't one of my favorite tracks. But, oh my God, that was the highlight of the show. Hearing hearing them do Diamond Head in well, concert. Well, they, they upped it a bit. They put in, they put more oomph into especially, like, the ending of it. It had just much more than what you hear on the record. That I mean, was I was perfect. just stunned. I was like, oh my God. I think anybody who's been to that show says the same thing. Like, Diamond Head was the highlight. And we we all mean that in a wonderful way. They had Probin playing the pedal steel guitar. Yeah. Which I never, I didn't know he could play that. Well, yeah. Of course oh, he could yeah, play he it. He could play anything. Jeez. They had Probin on pedal steel guitar and Rob Bonfilio. Or Buffy is the G silent in I his? No I don't know, but that's uh, Carney Wilson's husband and Ergo Brian Wilson's son-in-law. He's basically taking the spot once filled by Nick Walusko. Yeah, he just killed it on the on the ook on Diamond Head. He was he was just a well, madman. I that. mean, he did a great job. He was good. He he's yeah. yeah. He definitely did a good job the whole show. He was great. Again, going back to things we talked about, the Beach Boys concert. I mean this. Just watching Brian, knowing the things that he's been going through physically and mentally, 
I mean, he still wants to be out there. And I mean, a lot of fans say, oh, he shouldn't be doing this. He should just retire. And it's like rage against the dying of the light. Like he doesn't want, he doesn't want to retire because then he's just going to be an old man sitting at home. Well, that's what he said. He said, and, what, he said, look, I'm 70 some years old. What am I going to do? Like just sit around he, and be sad because I'm old? He wants to be there. It's like, damn it, he's trying. That first concert tour, I mean, a lot of times he was kind of deer in the headlights. And, you know, I had this feeling, it's like, it's like he's Tinkerbell. You have to believe in him in order for him to exist. And that first concert that we saw at the Beacon Theater in New York, it felt like we had to pour love towards him. If we didn't do that, he wouldn't exist and he wouldn't be able to do the show. Yep. And because the the love was practically tangible, it kind of feels like we've come back around to the same thing. Like he's not deer in the headlights anymore, but he's struggling now in a different way. And it's like, we just have to love him and love what he's trying to do and just be there for him. And I mean, it sounds weird. It's like, oh, you know, you're just buying a concert ticket and, I don't know if I'd have that kind of attitude if it was any other artist, but I mean, this man gave me music that has been an essential part of my life. Mm-hmm. I can't just turn my back on him. Yeah, and anybody who's who's ever a Brian Wilson fan, say before 1998, was at some point under the impression that you just would never, ever see him in, in person yeah. for any reason. So it's like, okay, this is something that we were certain would never happen. By God, we're not going to miss it. Yeah. If he's doing a show and I can make it, I'm going. Yep. That's the feeling, you know, you're not going to get that at a Mike and Bruce show. You're not going to get that level of emotion and that feeling of that you have gone to something where your soul was cleaned and pressed and ironed and you're ready to continue on with your life. And the thing is, this was not Brian's best show by far. And it was also not the worst we'd ever seen him. And there were some moments when I was like, oh my God, he sounded great there. But again, it wasn't Brian at his best. But seeing the band out there, even though like there were some different people out there from when we first started going to Brian's concerts, being there, hearing the music coming from that stage and seeing that band, I just sat there thinking, okay, this is more like it. Yeah. I'm back home now. And yeah, if like any any like Brian fans are listening to this, they're gonna they're already typing out an email that says, You didn't mention that Darian is keyboard player for both Brian and the zombies. Yeah. For Odyssey and Oracle, they use Darian Sahanaza to play most of the uh Mellotron parts. That's the show, I guess. Yeah. And that is our concerts for 2019. Was there anything that you really wished would have happened in 2019? Paul. For me, it would have been Stevie Wonder. But well, then, that too. That's I, always good. I mean, be. I'm going to be honest. Like, if I if I never get a chance to see Paul McCartney again, I'll be okay with it because I've seen him so many times. But I need more Stevie. We need, the world needs. The world more needs Stevie. more Stevie, and hopefully, he'll recover from his transplant soon, and he'll want to celebrate with a nice tour. So that's kind of what I'm hoping for 2020. Yeah. Uh, Brian's already got some shows scheduled for 2020. I see that The Who has some shows scheduled for 2020, so it'd be nice to see them again. Yeah. Possibly They Might Be Giants was brought up, even though neither one of us knows much about them, but we're thinking of going. Yeah. 
I plan specifically to not see the Beach Boys. Yeah. Unless it's going to be like what they did in 2012 and have the whole gang back together, then I'd go. Yeah, that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. No. And if Scattered Frog does a concert, then that might be something there. Scattered Frog. Yeah. By the way, folks, this conversation with my wife went on for much longer than what you just heard. If you wish to hear the full conversation with some more details, uh, you may have noticed that there seemed to be a lot of interruptions. Uh, Some of that was because of editing. I'm just going to tell you right now. Just had to keep it short as possible. And I was hoping to get it down to a half an hour, but it got down to just under an hour. But if you want to hear the whole thing, go to schnookpodcast.com and you will find a link to the entire conversation, which was about an hour and a half, I think. A few things I should kind of um, explain a little bit here. You may have noticed that Lisa mentioned performing a quick one while he's away in an ensemble at the Old Town School. That's the Old Town School folk music. I did an entire segment on them earlier in the history of this podcast And we were taking Psychedelic Garage Ensemble. Our friend Kathy teaches that. And every time she teaches it, there's a different focus. And this time it was The Who. And we love The Who. And we performed a quick one while he's away, which if you don't know that tune, look it up on YouTube. And in fact, I'll put a link to it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. But there is an amazing performance of that song from Rock and Roll Circus, hosted by the Rolling Stones back in 1968. Yeah, 1968. It is so killer. Oh, my goodness. And we mentioned Stevie Wonder. Uh, We saw his songs in the Key of Life tour twice, actually. We saw two different legs. So really, the Weird Al show would have been our third time hearing some version of Pastime Paradise with an orchestra instead of the original synthesizer. And regarding the Beach Boys uh, concert that we saw, we mentioned Jeffrey Foskett as being one of the backup musicians. We didn't talk about all the backup musicians because we don't know who they are mainly, but we knew Jeff uh, because he'd been involved with the Beach Boys going as far back as, I think, 1981. And for a long time, he was one of Brian Wilson's backup musicians. Well, it turns out that, yeah, the reason that Jeff had been missing out so many shows is he has cancer. That's freaky. Uh, Specifically, anaplastic thyroid cancer, which is a rarer and a harsher form of thyroid cancer. I read an article that, uh, I think Rolling Stone, yeah, Rolling Stone did an article about him because he just put out an album, and he said it's probably going to be the last album he ever does in which he sings because he lost one of his vocal cords to this cancer. And... He said that most people who are diagnosed with anaplastic thyroid cancer, they're gone in five months, but he's doing remarkably well. He's going through some uh, special treatment in Houston, and they told him, yeah, we're going to make sure that you stick around for quite a while. So I hope it does. I hope everything goes well for Jeff. And uh, oh, one thing I failed to mention, Ringo, one thing that just absolutely blew my mind is just looking at the energy Ringo had. And he was 11 months shy of his 80th birthday. Yeah, the day that I record this, he is under seven months from his 80th birthday. I don't know. I have a hard time believing that because it's a, he's in amazing shape. He was running all over the stage, jumping around, dancing. Oh, it's like, oh, my goodness. Seriously, he looked better than he did when he was half his age. But anyway, I should just shut up now. 
and end the episode and um, remind you of the ways you can get in touch with me. You can email me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Autobiography of a Schnook. Just do a search for that or facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. And by the way, if anybody friends me, if you ever friend me on Facebook or send me a friend request, if you're not somebody whose name would ring a bell to me, just message me and say, hey, um, it's I listen to your podcast and I'll be like, ah, okay. And then I'll uh, take your request into further consideration. <laughs> uh, Schnook Podcast is also my Twitter and Instagram handle as well. And uh, what else can I say? Again, the uh, online bibliography or show notes, as some people call it, that's schnookpodcast.com. And I thank all of you for listening. And as usual, I thank my wonderful wife, Lisa, not just for her ongoing support, but also for her participation in this particular podcast. And what more can I say other than the good goes around and I hope it comes around to you manifold this Christmas season or if you celebrate a different holiday, whatever holiday it happens to be, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Boxing Day, Solstice, Saturnalia, Saturnalia this time? I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, all the best, my friends. My friends.